previously a little bit leave it hey everybody welcome back to little bit leave it the podcast where we talk love island uk in the usa my name is ben and with me as always my podcasting partner and partner in life becca What's up, guys? I'm a little crunchy today, so this ought to be a real uh, roller coaster ride. A little crispy. Had a little too much fun last night. Yeah, I went out for dinner. I drank most of a bottle of mediocre wine and then stayed up till one o'clock in the morning playing online games. So, yippee. Yippee Kaye! I'm going to veer between overly exhausted and overly enthused. I also stayed up late playing games, but I did not go out to dinner. I get my second shot this week. I'm very excited about that. Super pumped to go out to restaurants and things like that again in just a few more weeks. But until then, I have so much Love Island and so much reality TV to keep me company. And leftover pizza. And leftover pizza. Yes, I ordered amazing Staten Island pizza last night from Reggiano's. They're not a sponsor. So today we are going to talk about season six of Love Island UK, episode 21. And we are going to do a deep dive into into what exactly? We were inspired by a conversation between Mike and Priscilla, and we ended up researching the history of Africans in the UK when the focus... Yeah, focus on Ghanaian immigrants and Ugandan immigrants specifically. Tying it into Mike and Priscilla, their conversation was about jollof rice, which we also looked up and learned about, and it sounds delicious, and I think I'm going to try to make some soon. Whoop, whoop. But that's later. Let's start from the beginning, and when we get to the end, we'll stop. So we are still at Casa Amor. It's our first night. This episode starts off with Rebecca, Demi, and Jess talking about the new boys. Yeah, Rebecca's done a remarkable 180. She says that if Jordan brought her avocado toast, she would rub it all over her body. Which, although to be fair, is not eating it. So maybe it's not a total 180. Avocado is probably pretty nice as a skin wrap. Yes, so Rebecca does a total 360, as they say on Love Island. And then Jess says, in a very shocking development, that she doesn't think that she can trust Mike. I think that shocking was sarcastic, right? Yes, very sarcastic. Yeah, she's considering her options and she figures Mike is going to move on and I think she's going to also. Not much I can say to knock that. I think she's right. Yeah. We know she's right. We know she's right and it's not surprising at all. Speaking of toast. Oh God, one of the best quotes and one of the most disgusting quotes of the season, of the episode. George pulls Demi. And he's grafting hard. He tells her, you are mustard and I'm having you on toast. And he is laying it on factor 50 thick, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, he's talking about being with someone forever. Like, whoa, Georgie George, hold your horses. And Demi's intrigued by this cheeky chappy, but I was kind of skeeved. She says she's open to him, but later in the episode, she does reaffirm that she wants to continue getting to know Nas. And we'll see how that works out. Still at the main villa, Rebecca and Jordan have a little 
one-on-one with no avocados involved. Oh, she is drunk, though. Yeah. She's drunk. It's actually quite cute. She's actually quite endearing. They're flirting hard, too. He's got long limbs, which are good for a cuddle. And we get our first Casa period snog. And we should remind the folks of why she is drunk. Because when they were passing the drinks mouth-to-mouth in the last episode... She was at the end and she was just drinking them all because I know that when I want to get drunk, I prefer drinks that have been in six other people's mouths first. Yeah, she might have a problem. Rebecca, you may need to seek help. So I actually like Jordan in this scene. He's kind of smooth. He comes off more positively than I, I think he did in the previous episode. He was smooth, but he was very humble. Unlike George, who came in Billy Big Balls, Jordan seemed very chill. Jordan seemed like someone I would enjoy talking to in this context. Yeah, nice sense of humor. And I also like that we're seeing another side to Rebecca. Yeah, Rebecca is turning... Look, she's always going to be the worst, Rebecca. But it's nice not to see her be awful for a few minutes. It's nice to see her be a little vulnerable for a few minutes. And we'll see. Yeah, and even later on in this episode, Shawnice does seem to have at least somewhat forgiven Rebecca. I don't know. Maybe Shawnice is just putting on a good front. I think that we're seeing a little bit of a different Rebecca since Jordan came in. And I think that's great. Let's get to Casa because there we've got the OG boys, Callum, Finn, and Luke M. They're talking about the bed decisions. Yeah, I think one of the major motifs of this episode is giving Callum a hard time or being Callum's sounding board. They suggest that Callum should say, jump in if your name rhymes with lolly. Callum needs to go for it. I think he's got the support of two very level-headed, of at least two very level-headed, thoughtful guys. So I agree somewhat with that description of Finn. But given what happens next when Natalia pulls Luke M, is it fair to really call Luke M level-headed and, I don't know, what was the word you used? Not wise, but... Reasonable. Reasonable in this episode? Why? She's asking him annoying questions. She's asking Luke M if she's nicer than Jess. Ew. He's not contributing anything to the conversation. She's just firing off questions at him. We can knock on him for that, but I don't know how this conversation made him look not reasonable. I guess, yeah. Or not level-headed. If he was not level-headed, he would have been like, gazunga, zunga, zunga, hey, baby. The only reason I said that is because, to me, it does seem like he is warming up to Natalia, and I am just a little suspicious given that yesterday or earlier in the day, she says to Finn, you know, I want a guy who is exactly like you. I want you and none of these other guys. And now she's laying it on Luke M. I don't know. Yeah, but he doesn't know that. Yeah, he doesn't know it, but yeah, maybe I'm being a little unfair to Luke M. You are, and Natalia is the one who goes fishing for a bedshare invitation. Yes, absolutely. So I think faced with this beautiful woman with sort of sneaky, unclear motives, I think he did a really good job of holding himself in. Then he gets into the beach hut, and he is so much more animated than he is when he's with the other people. It's so weird. The Luke M we see alone is never the Luke M we see among other people. Yeah, he does come off better when he is by himself. Or with Luke T. Or with Luke T. So now everybody is getting ready for bed. Callum says to Mike that, hey, it's not a big deal if I share a bed with Molly. And Mike tells him Shauna won't agree with that assessment. 
Yeah, Callum is trying so hard to alleviate his own guilt, but that's not really working, especially after he starts spraying on aftershave to go to sleep. If you are worried about smelling nice because you're sharing a bed with this girl, it is a big deal. I have platonically shared beds with boys before. None of them ever put on aftershave. No, you're absolutely right about that. I certainly do not make it a habit to put on aftershave before I go to bed. So Callum sleeps with Molly. Mike sleeps with Priscilla. Luke M shares a bed with Natalia. Luke T with Jamie. Nas with Eva. And Finn with no one. He sleeps outside. I'm surprised that Finn slept outside, but... Good for him for sleeping alone. I was a little surprised that Luke T shared a bed. Although to be fair, he didn't look super excited about it. As we see later in this episode, he's starting to realize where his true feelings lie. Back at the main villa, we've got Demi sleeping with Biggs. Paige and Shauna sleeping together on the couch. Shawnice alone in a bed. Rebecca and Jordan snogging and Jess alone. So the new guys are not having much luck because Demi and Biggs are not a thing. Right. We've really just got Rebecca and Jordan so far. The next morning, the original girls, they're worried a little bit maybe about the guys and whether they stayed faithful and slept in beds with these new girls. There's a lot of worrying going on and it's a little annoying. So over at Casa, we see Callum making tea for Molly, learning how she likes her tea. Soya milk. So Molly's got her path pretty well set. The girls admire that Finn is immovable, but at the same time, now they're down two guys and the other five girls are going to have to, as Eva says, graft real hard if they want to stay on the show. Graft like their life depends on it. So we shall see who is successful. Yeah, and she's really not off considering they cut to the Lukes trying to remember the names of all the girls. Not the best sign. No, well, Luke M has an embarrassment of riches. If you have the problem of six girls liking you, you can call 0800-GO-SCREW-YOURSELF for professional assistance. Thank you, Ian Sterling. Yes. So Luke M likes how forward Natalia is because he doesn't have to do anything. Luke T doesn't like anyone and they don't like him. So he's going to wingman. And here is when he confesses that he is surprised how much he misses Shawnice. And Luke M reminds him that they do have a good thing going and not to be sad about these Casa girls. The Casa girls who Shauna and Paige imagine as, of course, totally perfect. They're all tens. All the guys are going to have their heads turned. Shauna is just constantly saying that Callum is going to dump her throughout this whole episode. And we get a whole conversation of it here. Well, Paige is not much better off. Paige says, I hope he remembers how funny I am. Ugly, but funny. They paint this picture of these imaginary girls that they all work for animal charities. None of them have plastic surgery and they all wear sexy pajamas. And Sean is lamenting that the previous night she had worn ugly pajamas and spot cream to bed. And now she's picturing a house full of lingerie clad babes. And the topper for that whole conversation is Callum tried to speak to me, but I had a face full of cheese. Face full of cheese. I don't think it's the cheese that is so much the issue here. I think it's more that Callum and Molly seem to have some common interests and they do really seem to get along better than Callum and Shauna. I mean, Callum and Shauna had some great banter at the very beginning of the show, but really they haven't had that for the last, I don't know, at least the last week. 
Yeah, they were kind of coasting on that. And the ride has come to a stop. And some good editing here when they go right from that Sean and Paige conversation to Callum and Molly talking to each other. Yeah, Callum has got some guilt. He had a terrible night's sleep. And I know it's because he's freaking out about breaking news to Shauna. Can we talk about how Molly has been paid for her feet? Callum's making fun of Molly's feet. She's been given money for those. I mean, more power to her. I'm not judging her. It's just... I was just thinking maybe Finn hasn't been so loyal after all. (laughs) But the next little conversation with Nas, surrounded by women himself... That is a fun little scene. And they push him and he says he's into Eva and Jamie. Yeah, I was a little disappointed that he came right out and said Demi was not his type. But they've been in a high pressure situation and now they're close. And then there was this whole thing about Nicole Scherzinger, how that's his ideal girl. And does Eva look like her? I guess they're both tan, but I don't really see much of a resemblance otherwise. I don't even know who Nicole Scherzinger is. This conversation might have been lost on us, American olds, but hey, at least I know who she is. Yeah, well, exactly. Then we see Mike and Priscilla. This is that conversation that really inspires the deep dive. She just seems so much more on Mike's wavelength than Leanne ever did. She just is not so serious. She seems to really have fun. Yeah, she likes the right kind of rice, which makes her wifey material. Yes. But can we talk about them trying to rap? That was worse than Kevin Chris. Yes. That was so uncomfortable. Mike and Priscilla, something in the villa, and that's as far as they got. That was the best they could do. Well, yeah, we don't know. Maybe they just got a bad edit. I feel like if anything else came out of that conversation, we would have seen it. Probably. Probably. But then we've got a text. <laughs> It's time for the raunchy races. It's a tradition at Casa Amor. We're going to make sure that these guys and girls snog each other and do other fun, flirty things. Yes, it's a tradition like the contestant who gets no screen time. Thank you again, Ian. And I think we're talking about Jade and Alexi here. Yeah, Jade and Alexi are probably the two, though. Josh also gets basically no screen time. Who? Yeah, exactly. Shawnice gives us her third lap dance. The shortest people have to snog. And so that is Nas and Demi from our original cast snogging the new people. And I just thought Shauna had to make Demi feel sad by reminding her that Nas was the boy that had to snog somebody. I thought that was a little shitty. Shauna was helping rain on other people's parades. Uh, That's Kind of par for the course for Shauna. Yeah. The youngest boy had to suck the youngest girl toes. Yeah, they had to set that up so Finn would suck somebody's feet. Right. Absolutely. There was no way that wasn't set up. They said he was snogging the toes. He loves the toes and they still lost. Then, of course, they also had to do the tallest boy snogging. So Callum would definitely have to snog somebody and Shauna would know it. Yeah, she said, I can't cry, but I will. And then she gets her revenge. They do the lipstick kisses and she happened to have lipstick on her. So, of course, Shauna busts it out and kisses all over Alexi and she wins. So at least Shauna could propel some of that anger into victory. And I bet that felt good. We also had a kiss between the first names alphabetically and Eva goes after Nas hard. She is into him. Oh, yeah. Eva gets to kiss Nas. And, of course, Demi kisses Alexia in that same round. 
the villa ends up winning eight to six they made sure that every single person and a solid couple had to kiss someone else good on you producers that's the raunchy races for season six then we get a little bit of dressing room scene anything you want to talk about in the dressing rooms as people get ready well, the villa is getting ready for their champagne party, which will obviously just be shitty sparkling wine. But they're excited. Yes, Shauna reveals that she has done bits. Oh. She did not reveal which bits, but Rebecca says that she wouldn't. But we all know that Rebecca is lying to herself and to us. Yes. Rebecca would definitely do Jordan's bits. Mike has a great line. Your boy, Mike. You want yeah. to talk about Mike? Well, he says that he really goes for personality. And if it had only been about looks, he would have gone for Jess from the very beginning. And Luke M has a great, oh shit face. Yeah. Luke M liked that one. So perhaps there is a detente coming between Luke M and Mike as they both realize that Jess is not the girl for them. So when we get a quick conversation between Callum, Finn, Molly, and Natalia... Molly is still trying to get Callum to open up. Natalia is supporting her. They're throwing questions at him and he is just frozen. He is trying so hard not to ditch Shauna still, but Molly knows that door is open. I don't think he's not trying to ditch Shauna. I think that he is trying to look good on TV, honestly. Right, because he doesn't want to hurt Shauna's feelings. Shauna's not even there. I don't think he's that concerned about her feelings. I think he's concerned about making sure that he comes off good on TV, honestly. Well, that's very cynical, and it's not impossible. Maybe it's a little cynical, but at this point, Love Island has been on for so long. Its role in the tabloids, its role in pop culture is very, very well known. So I think the contestants really are much more aware of how they're going to be portrayed on TV than other times. And I think Callum understands that there might be some blowback if he were to just kind of dump Shauna. I don't think Callum's that sophisticated, frankly. I don't even think it takes that much. I mean, I think there have been plenty of times in the previous seasons, you know, somebody dumps a fan favorite and he doesn't know necessarily that Shauna's a fan favorite, but still, you know, you dump a fan favorite, people are going to really not like you. And I can understand why he's conscious of how he's going to come across so then we've got a scene where miss no personality is getting flirted with by ched a whole lot of man and he's coming on pretty hard too jess is not really feeling it i don't know she just gives him no clues i don't think she comes across very well here she really just demands for him to reveal how he feels about her and then when he is tongue-tied and very clearly likes her She really plays it cool. I did not like this scene. I do not like Jess in this episode for this reason. Ched seems like a gentle giant, which is really sweet. I think he's very likable. And, you know, will he crack Jess? Will he make Jess be the person that she could be? Because she has shown flashes of decency. She is still really young. So we'll see if Ched can bring Jess up to the next level of humanity. I don't know. I think between this and how she behaved with Luke M, I just think that Jess has a long ways to go. And you were a saint when you were 20? Not saying that at all. I'm just saying that of the people on the show this season, now on this rewatch, I'm actually surprised by 
how much I don't like Jess because for me in the first watch, she really was not that much of an entity. And now I'm looking at it and she just has this way of treating other people that I don't really love. Well, we shall see. We shall see. Yeah. Speaking of awkward, weird conversations, Demi pulls Alexi and she's kind of pulling a Jess here saying that she likes Nas, but she also likes Alexi and she's open to talking to him. But she hasn't made up her mind. And Alexi says, well, it kind of seems like you have. Yeah, I don't think she actually pulls Alexi here. I think this was a conversation that was set up by the producers. So I don't think we actually see her pulling him. This is the thing we hear about all the time from the former contestants. They'll say, oh, well, you kissed so-and-so during the challenge. We think you should go have a conversation with them. And then they go over there and it's all set up and there's lights and cameras and so forth. Well, that would explain why it was such a weird conversation and why Demi had one foot firmly planted on either side of the line. Yeah. And why Alexi just looked not even confused. He just looked like he could not be bothered. He couldn't be arsed. Yeah, it was a setup. So then Shauna, Paige, Shaunice talk about missing the guys and whether the guys are missing them. Shaunice is remarkably positive here. She says, look, they could be doing the right thing. We don't know. And it's a test. She's happy that it's happening. And I have to give Shaunice a lot of credit for being very optimistic and keeping a stiff upper lip. Shawnee's tries to tell Shauna she has nothing to worry about. But at this point, I think everyone knows that's not true, including them. And then there's one final scene. I loved this scene. I thought this was really underrated. Callum and Finn seem to have bonded in the absence of the Connors. So Finn is trying to get more info from Callum. He, he's trying to get Callum to open up. Callum is really, really not giving anybody anything, but he's in deep. You know, he just keeps talking about how he wants to rip Molly's clothes off. And so I guess when I say Callum's not giving anyone anything, he's not willing to commit to saying, I don't like Shauna. I do like Molly. And so finally, Finn asks him, do you want to rip Shauna's clothes off? And Callum is forced to admit, no. And there's this look on his face when you see Callum realize the thing with Shauna is over and he has to move on. I give him a lot of credit for his conscience. He's tried really hard to not be a dick. I also respect the fact that he's realizing he has to be true to himself. He has to follow his heart. And staying with Shauna is bad for both of them. So good on them. We see the next on. Callum takes that next step. And Shauna is still bugging. This episode of Little Bit Leave It is brought to you by Resistance Cafe, Perth Amboy's newest lunch destination. Tired of eating the same soups and salads day in and day out? We get it. Lunch has gotten pretty boring lately. So boring, in fact, one might say it's oppressive. Oppressively boring. It's time to spice up your day at Resistance Cafe. Check out our brothless soup menu where you can enjoy our brothless ground beef patty soup served with melted cheese, bacon, and all the fixins. Or brothless grilled chicken, fresh mozzarella, roasted red peppers, and balsamic dressing soup. And all of our brothless soups come served with a freshly toasted bun that we just happen to cut in half widthwise. Or check out our selection of deli-style stacked salads 
such as maple roasted turkey breast and extra sharp cheddar with lettuce, tomato, and our signature caramelized onion chutney, or honey glazed ham with Havarti and spicy brown mustard. All of our deli-style stacked salads come with two large slices of bread. We'll even put one at the bottom of the stack when you say you want it Bronwyn style. With daily specials and a free can of soda or bottle of water with every purchase over $10, what's not to like? Come on down to Resistance Cafe in downtown Perth Amboy. The Resistance Cafe. The revolution may not be televised, but it comes with a pickle. And as always, you can support Little Bit Leave It on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash littlebitleaveit. Starting at just $2 a month, you can get bonus content with every single episode. That's our after show, Spoils of Love, which is right after this show. What else can they get? Well, for $5 a month, you can be on our Discord server and get access to all of our bonus episodes, which are perfect for the fan of all six seasons, perfect for the nerd in you. I would also say that a subscription to Little Bit Leave It is a great present for that special person in your life. You can also follow us on social media, LBLI Podcast for me on Twitter, LBLI Peng for Beck on Twitter. Yeah, there's a Facebook and an Instagram. Just put in Little Bit Leave It. You'll find us. You'll find us. We're there. Little Bit Leave It podcast. That's us. So today's deep dive, as we mentioned, was inspired by the conversation between Mike and Priscilla about rice and wifey material. Mike is Ghanaian and Priscilla is Ugandan. So obviously we know that there has been a lot of immigration from the former colonies to the UK. And we wanted to look a little deeper into the history and the impact of Africans on the UK. So I'm going to take you through a little trip through time and space. And Ben will then fill in the blanks. So buckle up. As far back as Roman Britain... North Africans have been taking their place and making their mark in society. Romanized North Africa was the coastal region, which was comprised of parts of Tunisia, Algeria, and Libya. There wasn't much evidence of sub-Saharan Africans in the UK until in 2014, the Eastbourne Museum spent £12,000 to DNA test 12 skeletons that had been sitting in their collections. One of them, named the Beachy Head Lady, named after the label on the box her bones were stored in, turned out to be a definitively sub-Saharan woman in excellent condition, dating back to 200 AD. So there have been Africans in the UK since before England was a thing. As trade opened between London and West Africa, people started coming to the UK on both slave and merchant ship. In 1555, John Locke, not John Locke, L-O-C-K-E, brought five Africans from Ghana to serve as translators for those trade transactions. And then in the late 1500s and early 1600s, during the war with Spain, people came from the Spanish colonized areas and England freed the slaves who came in on Spanish ships. And these people were known as Blackamoors. They were dark-skinned North African Muslims. So during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, 
having black servants and entertainers became fashionable among the wealthy and the court, though her privy council discouraged and despised free black settlements. These are ringing some bells. We want them to entertain and serve us, but we don't want them to be people. The harvests had failed in the 1590s, which led to widespread poverty and hunger, and the queen and her peeps used black people as the scapegoats. She arranged with merchant Caspar Van Senden to deport black people from England in 1596. And it's unclear whether they were going to be sold for profit to buy back English prisoners being held by Spain and Portugal, or if they were going to be exchanged for English prisoners. Queen Elizabeth tried again in 1601, and it was also unsuccessful. Many of the black poor that she despised were unemployed. There were some indentured servants, some sailors. There were a few notably successful black people, like Ignatius Sancho. He was a writer, composer, shopkeeper, and financially independent householder. He became the first black person of African origin to vote in parliamentary elections in Britain, in a time when only 3% of the British population was allowed to vote. By the late 1600s, slavery was in full swing. Black slaves were attendants to sea captains and ex-colonial officials, as well as traders, plantation owners, and military men. This caused an increasing black presence in the north, east, and southern areas of London. Black communities in cities like Liverpool and Bristol grew exponentially due to being major port cities. Liverpool has the oldest black community in Britain, dating back to the 1730s. Some people are able to trace their families back 10 generations. About 20,000 black people lived in Britain in the 1700s, 10 to 15,000 of whom lived in London. Unfortunately, black people faced discrimination and hatred through the 1700s, accused of being the source of crime. Though slavery was declared illegal in 1706, it didn't stop the Brits from profiting from the slave trade, as the boundaries of who could or could not be a slave were unclear. Free blacks could not be enslaved, but any black people brought to England as slaves were fair game. Yeah, I actually had read that one of the reasons that slavery was declared illegal within Britain in 1706 was because of white people being enslaved and those really unclear boundaries and white people being impressed into slavery. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Well, yeah, doing the right thing for a reason that would not have occurred to us as Americans, certainly. Well, I think that's the wrong reasons. Yeah, my point was white slavery was not a thing in the U.S. So the abolitionist movement picked up and in the mid-18th century, black activists such as Olada Equano, Ignatius Sancho, and Ottoba Caguano, a.k.a. John Stewart, were some of the prominent black leaders trying to get slavery abolished. And then in 1772, there was a landmark ruling. Lord Mansfield Court ruled that fugitive slaves would not be sent home and could not be resold. This verdict triggered black flight from their owners, the decline of slavery in England, and further calls by Equano and others for the abolition of the slave trade. So that, of course, being in direct contrast to the United States, which much, much later had the Fugitive Slave Act and, of course, the Dred Scott decision. And, wow, you can see why American slave owners were probably so nervous about that kind of thing when they saw what had happened in Britain. 
as slavery crumbled, London's black community that lived among white people in areas like Mile End, Stepney, Paddington, and St. Giles. The majority were living as free men, householders, or tenants. Unfortunately, many continued to become the black poor. You know, former soldiers, sailors, and plantation workers had few skills that were pertinent to the evolving industrial urban economy. And I'm sure they also faced a lot of discrimination in trying to get jobs in factories, right? For now, yes. For now. In 1786, Olada Equano, who we've mentioned as a famous notable activist, became the first black person to be employed by the British government when he was made commissary of provisions and stores for the 350 black people suffering from poverty who decided to accept the government's offer of relocation to the new colony of Sierra Leone. Some of these black people were loyalist black Americans who had fled the U.S. after fighting for the crown in the war, and they had become indigent without their military pension. Interestingly, in Sierra Leone, in 1792, the heads of all the households, one third of which were women, were given the right to vote. So those women had suffrage way before British women or American women. Wow. Yes. So the slave trade continued to wane. Thankfully, the Atlantic trade was abolished by Britain and the U.S. by 1808, and slavery was abolished in the entire British Empire by 1834. The rise of industry and factories also lessened the need to keep people as chattel. It also meant a virtual halt to black immigration to Britain, just as immigration from other parts of Europe was increasing. The black population, mostly male, in Victorian Britain was so small that those living outside of the big port cities were pretty isolated from other black communities, and so they started intermarrying with the white Britons. The 1800s is also when scientific racism blossomed. Quote, unquote, scientific, of course. Yeah, yeah, and these fake-ass scientists started claiming that black people were less intelligent, the 1800s was phrenology when, was when phrenology became a thing and they claimed that the shape and size of black skulls meant that they were not intelligent. So despite all of the prejudice, there were some black people who were able to be successful. And one of my favorites was Pablo Fanque, who rose to become the proprietor of one of Britain's most successful circuses. And he is immortalized in the lyrics of a Beatles song. Being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. The Hendersons were the name of some of his employees. It's really cool. And I just love the goofy little song that I am very fond of relates to this topic. So World War I brought small growth from merchants and soldiers, as well as students migrating to London. There were still only about 10,000 black people in 1914. So that's actually fewer. Yes. Because it wasn't being replenished. Yeah. They were forcing them to leave and not bringing any new black people in. Yes. Yes. But by 1918, after the growth from the war, it was about 20 to 30,000 people. So we're back up almost to that population, the peak population. Correct. There were large concentrations of black people in London's East End, Bristol, Liverpool, Newcastle, Cardiff, and Glasgow. Again, all water adjacent. The post-war downturn in the economy left many white people without jobs, and they couldn't do anything to hurt the large shipping companies, so they decided to blame black and other minority communities for taking their gerbs and their women. 
And sadly, this led to race riots from January to August 1919 in many cities with significant black population. June 1919 saw the peak of the rioting with violent and brutal events in Liverpool and Salford, including lynchings, the destruction of black homes and businesses, and police brutality against black people who retaliated against the rioters. Sad, heavy shit, man. The U.S. certainly does not have a monopoly on being shitty. I would say that we learned some of our best being shitty from our, you know, U.K. roots. Absolutely. So World War II led to more growth in black communities. Many people came as wartime workers in factories, lots of American GIs. In the summer of 1944, there were about 150,000 black people. Again, mostly American GIs. After the war, it shrank back to 20,000 black people, almost all born overseas. And then came the change. In 1948, the boat Empire Windrush brought one of the first large groups of West Indian immigrants to the United Kingdom, carrying just over a thousand passengers and two stowaways from Jamaica to London. And they almost all settled in Brixton, which is still considered one of the centers of black British culture. And immigration from the Caribbean continued nine years later, as Ghana gained its independence from Britain, a wave of immigrants came from Ghana and other former British colonies in Africa. And of course, what did they do? They limited immigration. Of course, then we get a whole series of laws restricting immigration. I don't know any other country that had this pattern. Right. So between 1957 and the passage of this law in 1962, anybody from the colonies could pass freely in and out of Britain. No visa, no passport, nothing. But the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act forced immigrants from former colonies to go through immigration control unless they were UK born or held a UK passport. And then that wasn't strong enough. That wasn't harsh enough. So another Commonwealth Immigrants Act was passed in 1968, which added that they had to have a parent or grandparent born in the UK. And that was passed due to fears of immigration by Asians living in Kenya who were being subject to the country's Africanization policies. And Africanization meaning when Idi Amin forced all of the Asian descended Africans, a lot of whom had come from India and Pakistan, other British colonies into East Africa, he forced them all out. And then there were further acts in 1971 and 1981 adding harsher restrictions. Back to the 50s, there were race riots in 1958 in Notting Hill. There was a Bristol bus boycott in 1963. And finally, we start seeing some change, even though this is around the same time as these immigration laws. Isn't that how it always is? Two steps forward, one step back. One step forward, two steps back. So the Race Relations Act of 1965 outlawed discrimination on the grounds of color, race, or ethnic or national origins in public places. But it excluded shops and private boarding houses. So you could still refuse to rent somebody's space. You could still refuse to serve somebody. In 1968, however, housing, employment, and public service discrimination based on race were added to this act. So a little bit of movement. This is the same time the U.S. is really reckoning with our civil rights abominations. So across the pond, doing the same thing. David Pitt was a Labor Party politician from Grenada. He was the first person of African descent to become a parliamentary candidate in 1959. And in 1975, he became the second peer of African descent to become a life peer member of the House of Lords. 
And it was his work that helped pass the 1976 Race Relations Act, which finally banned discrimination on the grounds of race, color, nationality, ethnicity, national origin across the board. It's interesting. So David Pitt, he was in the House of Lords. And though he stood as a parliamentary candidate, he was not actually a member of parliament. And the first black British people to actually become members of parliament, that didn't happen until 1987, when four black Britons became members of parliament. Since the 80s, there's been a really large uptick in black immigration from Africa, especially Ghana, 10 to 20% of Ghanaians live abroad, and Nigeria in West Africa, Uganda and Kenya in East Africa, and South Africa in Southern Africa. The Ghanaian and Nigerian students quickly started excelling in higher education, and they also came from more wealthy communities and were able to stay pretty insular. So they had low rates of interracial marriage with native Britons, as opposed to Caribbean immigrants who were more spread out. By the end of the 20th century, there were about 500,000 black Londoners, increasingly British born. By 1987, there were nine black parliament members. By 2001, there were about 1.1 million black people in Great Britain, mostly Caribbean. By 2011, black people were about 3% of the total population. There were about 2 million black British. About half of those lived in London. I want to talk about how Ghanaian immigrants and UK-born Black British of Ghanaian descent in particular have had uh, a major impact on Britain's pop culture, especially its music. So Love Island favorite Stormzy, who even comes on the third season, and Lethal Bizzle and Dizzy Rascal and Fuse ODG. These are some of the most prominent grime artists, and they are all of Ghanaian descent. And it's the musical genres themselves, though, that really demonstrate the influence of Ghanaians and other African immigrants on the larger British pop culture. Electronic music in the UK seems to have much more complex and syncopated beats compared to the electronic music in the US, at least in my very unscientific sample especially when you compare tracks that were produced around the same time. So if you listen to Afro Swing artists, and Afro Swing is a genre of UK rap and R&B that has electronic drum beats that kind of come from jungle and drum and bass, It sounds kind of dark, even when the song is kind of happy. Actually, Wes's new song has some Afro swing elements. Afro swing also has a distinctive beat where there is oftentimes no bass drum on the third beat of a measure, which is a little weird for American ears, honestly. In American hip hop, there's pretty much always a bass drum on the third beat. It might get swung a little bit. If you listen to these beats, they're really complex. And I'm guessing that's because of the heavier influence of electronic music combined with Ghanaian drumming rhythms. Ghanaian drumming is famous for its syncopation. The complex rhythms were integrated into a lot of the electronic music in the UK going back to the early 2000s. So before Afro swing and grime, Ghanaian immigrants and other black British were pioneering jungle and drum and bass. And it's not an exaggeration to say that most contemporary British rap and dance music would sound really different without the influence of West African music. And of course, our podcast title is from a grime song that Kem and Chris did. That is how much 
grime and West African rhythms have permeated UK pop culture and music. It's on Love Island. I really like some Kojo Fun songs, Done Talking with him and Abracadabra. And I think you can count on one hand the number of times that the bass drum actually hits on the third beat in that entire song. Kojo Funs is half Ghanaian and I believe Abracadabra is entirely Ghanaian, though born in London. I think Kojo Fun's also born in London. The most famous entertainer who is black British from Ghanaian descent is probably Idris Elba, who is, of course, famous in the United States for playing Stringer Bell on The Wire, as well as his hilarious arc toward the end of The Office. And he is famous in the UK for playing Luther on Luther. I did not know that Idris Elba is also a musician and DJ. He was in a Fat Joe video before he was ever famous for The Wire. And he was also on the intro to Jay-Z's American Gangster album. He's also been involved with a number of other famous musicians and bands turning up in a Pharaoh Monch track. So he also has his own record label, by the way. And as a performer, he is opened for Madonna. But I don't want to be reductive here because Ghanaian immigrants have not only made their mark on British pop culture... Black Britons of Ghanaian descent have also become prominent athletes, professionals, politicians. David Ajay, the architect who designed the Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., is one notable example. And another is Sam Jima, a politician who is a member of the Liberal Democrats, the U.K.'s centrist party. What's interesting is how he became a member of that party. Because Jima was actually a member of the Conservative Party and was a member of Parliament for almost a decade as a Tory. And in that time, he held several really important positions in government. He ended up resigning from Theresa May's cabinet in protest of her Brexit deal in November 2018. He was the seventh member of May's cabinet to do so. He then co-founded a group that saw a second referendum on Brexit and was one of the leaders of the small block of conservative MPs who were skeptical of Brexit. A year after he resigned from May's cabinet, he voted against Boris Johnson's no-deal Brexit, becoming one of the 20 conservative MPs to vote against it, and then later become expelled from the party. So he sat as an independent member of parliament for the rest of the term. He ran for re-election as a Lib Dem and lost. And now he works for Goldman Sachs. I was not able to find out nearly as much, though, about the Ugandan influence on the UK. In fact, the majority of what I actually found was on the East African Asians who immigrated from Uganda after Idi Amin forced Ugandans of Asian descent out of the country. But Uganda is one of the major sources for African immigrants to the UK in recent decades. And some famous people who are British of Ugandan descent are Daniel Kaluuya, the star of Get Out, and one of the stars of the music video for Cold Little Heart by Michael Kiwanuka. And Michael Kiwanuka is another Black Briton of Ugandan descent. Do yourself a favor, listen to it right after this podcast. You're not going to want to miss what's coming up. Do not leave. What's coming up? Honestly, I just said that to keep people listening. But Black British from Ugandan descent have made other notable impacts on the UK. 
There just aren't nearly as many of them as there are people whose families trace their roots to Ghana, and they are typically more recent immigrants. One interesting person I came across was John Sentamu. Sentamu is a big deal. He was a very, very big deal young attorney in Uganda in the early 1970s. And that was, of course, a very tumultuous time in Uganda. That is when Idi Amin came to power. He was even a judge on the highest court in Uganda at the beginning of the Amin regime. And he pissed off Idi Amin, who imprisoned him and tortured him for three months. And after that, Sentamu, quite understandably, fled to the UK. In one of the most successful career changes of all time, so this guy went from basically being the equivalent of a Supreme Court justice in Uganda and a hotshot lawyer to becoming a priest. He studied theology and eventually got his PhD from Cambridge, and he rose to become the Archbishop of York, which is the second highest ranking position in the Church of England. He retired last year in 2020, but not before becoming an outspoken advocate for helping Britain's poor and an outspoken critic of Zimbabwean dictator Robert Mugabe. So if you can find any video interviews of him, check them out. He says some pretty entertaining stuff, and he also says some really insightful things about how Zimbabwe can and should recover from Mugabe in particular. You know, he can be very cringy, like when he said that he had no issue performing Prince William and Kate Middleton's marriage. Oh, yeah, I should note he performed Prince William and Kate Middleton's marriage. He had no issue that they were living together before marriage. He literally used the some people want to try the milk before they buy the cow line, which is aggressively sexist. But for an archbishop, I suppose the guy is relatively tolerant and progressive. So like with a lot of our deep dives, we really can't go deep enough in one episode. So I think we're going to have to return to the subject of how different immigrant and ethnic communities have impacted British culture. I'm sure we will do that again and again and again. And of course, we really would love to hear from you if we got anything wrong or if you think that we missed something important. Please, please email us littlebitleaveitpodcast at gmail.com. Or send us a tweet. Because that works too. We're here. We want to hear from you. We're open to correction. So we're going to skip culture shock. Got nothing there. And we are going to launch right into the TNA report. The TNA report. At the first night, we got a glimpse of it in the previous episode when they were passing drinks mouth to mouth. But during Demi's little chat with George, we see her teal dress with the rhinestones up the front. I like the color. The color looks beautiful with her skin and hair colors, but the rhinestones weren't great. So questionable mixed reviews. The next night we've got thumbs down. Alexi's ugly shirt. Doesn't Nas have that same ugly shirt? I wouldn't be surprised if that's wardrobe. That was a similar ugly shirt that we've seen. And then Ched wearing camo. I just hate camo. I negate camo at all opportunities. I mean, Ched will never blend into the background. Let's be real. I like Ched dressing preppy. I like Ched dressing formally. I bet that man looks amazing in a tuxedo. Whew. Okay, and then we've got some positives. I'm not just a negative Nancy. We've got the girls looking fine that second night. Jade looks great, and she's got a hot pink dress. Shawnice in her trademark neon chartreuse. 
Demi in a silky, lacy, white, Victorian nightgown mini dress. I don't know. It works. Eva was wearing red. And Molly, I thought, had the best of the dresses with a one-sleeve black two-piece dress. Yeah, I really like Molly's one-shoulder dress or whatever that is. I also liked Priscilla's dress a lot, that black dress she was wearing. That's what I've got. Not a ton of fashion. You know, with these Casa Amor episodes, you would think there'd be so much more fashion because there's so many more people, but there's so many more things happening that it's harder to pay attention to what they're wearing because you're trying to wade through all of the drama. Well, last week we actually took the time to rewatch another time just for fashion, which, you know, if we weren't so lazy, we would do every single week. But hey, come on, give us a break, folks. Well, it depends. You know, it depends on what else is going on. So let's do it. Let's let's just bring it on home. Rank the couples. All right. Should we go top to bottom or bottom to top this week? Let's go top to bottom. Okay. Number one, our top couple of the week. It is Paige and Finn. Paige is sticking by her man and trying to stay cool. Finn is sleeping outside with the bugs and they are doing great. So they jump ahead of our number two couple this week, Shaunice and Luke T. Shaunice is keeping a positive outlook. Luke T has calmly accepted that he likes Shaunice and is going to wingman. And I would say that if you split them up, those couples, it would be number one, Finn, number two, Shaunice. Number three, Paige. Number four, Luke T. Okay. But anywho. But we're not doing that. No, but I was just giving the four of them credit where credit was due. Of course. Of course. And our number three couple this week, nudging up from number four, it's Callum and Molly. I mean, they're not a full couple, but it's inevitable, is it not? Especially now that we've seen the next on. We know there's going to be some smooches. We all know. Yes. We all knew how this was going to go. And now we've seen the evidence. Coming in at number four, another strong performance. She drops down from number one, but still very, very strong episode for Eva. Solo number four. She sticks one on Nas and he's a changed man. Coming in at number five, it is Mike and Priscilla. Well, yeah, they're talking about wifing up, so. And talking about ricing up. I am excited to try that stuff. Number six. Rebecca and Jordan. Showing some dimension, showing some snogging. So Rebecca holds steady at number six and brings Jordan along with her. But coming in at number seven, it's Nas and Demi. Demi has shown a little interest in George and Alexi. Nas has shown a little bit of interest in Jamie and Eva. But at this point, they are still both sticking to the fact that they want to see where things go with one another. Yeah, we will see what happens over the next couple of episodes. And coming in at number eight. Well, now we have the pity tier. Exactly. That's right. We have our first tier, one through seven. And then now we've gotten the people who really just deserve our pity. And they didn't do anything bad. They didn't do anything wrong. They're just not doing anything strong. Yeah, not necessarily doing anything right either. The pity tier at number eight, it's those guys that Demi was flirting with, George and Alexi, along with Ched. I do like me a Ched. So hopefully... We all know. We all know. You've, you've only said it about 10 times this episode and a dozen times the last episode. I'm gonna... you're, you're very, very thirsty for Ched. We am, get it. I am thirsty. We I'm get gonna... it. 
I'm going to keep saying it. Yep, I know. Coming in at number nine, it's sad, sad Shauna. Yeah, she had some good lines this episode, and her conversation with Paige was really funny, so we thought we'd show her a little pity and keep her out of the basement. At number 10, it's Biggs. Still like him, still wish he would get some more attention and screen time. Rounding out the pity tier, it is the three people who are not getting any real screen time, Jamie, Jade, and Josh. And... Then we've got our, what do we call this? Our disdain tier? The eye roll tier. The eye roll tier. Coming in at number 12, Jess. Yeah, I think we've explained why. And in the basement, unlucky 13. Luke M and Natalia. Oi. Yeah, they're at the bottom largely because I am skeptical of Natalia. And poor, poor Luke M. He had all these girls that might have had a genuine interest in getting to know him. But he picks Natalia. I'm not so sure her motives are sincere. Because she did all the work. He liked that she came on to him hard and is leading him along. And he's into that. And Yeah, and look, when you're as good looking a guy as Luke M and you look like Justin Bieber... You're going to believe the chick is into you. You're going to believe it? You're going to believe it. Because what chick doesn't want to be a believer? Jess. Yes, I suppose. You'd think that that would have taught him something. You'd think. So that just about closes it out. Yep. Send us emails. Hit us with the socials. Go on patreon.com slash little bit leave it and give us money to hear more stuff. Yes. Patreon.com slash little bit leave it. It's okay. We can say we have to say it over and over again. Patreon.com slash little bit. Leave it. Patreon.com slash little bit. Leave it. Turn it down really low and then put it under your pillow and maybe that'll work. Yeah. Subscribe. Leave us reviews. All that stuff. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. All of that. So. From Staten Island. To Love Island. Pardon me, do you have any gray poupons?